Exodus 32, page 62. And you also might want to grab the insert in your bulletin. It has prayer requests on one side and on the opposite side is an outline of the message. It will also give you the reflection questions that we're going to use different parts during the service. So just want to maybe want to pull that out, take some notes, or just have it in front of you. Exodus 32. When we last left Mount Sinai, the Lord had brought his people Israel up out of Egypt. He brought them to himself. And he had shared with them, he spoke out of his own mouth the ten words, the ten commandments. And I tried to give you an image last week that these were in many ways were, were vows and an invitation to marriage. Um, the idea being that if Israel as his bride would live out, the promise of, live out of the promise of his love, she would become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, sharing the peace, justice, and grace of God with all the nations of the world. And there were some initial cold feet, you'll recall, on Israel's part, but then she said, I do, not once, but three times. Together, the people committed to reorganize their life around the presence of Yahweh. There was an exchange of vows, a wedding ceremony, a covenant was cut, a promise was made. And at the end of chapter 24, post-wedding reception, Moses is called up to the mountain to converse with God. In many ways, the, the, the way we ought to think about this is that a proper wedding deserves a proper wedding gift. And God has called Moses onto the mountaintop to give him the plans and the instructions for the construction of a dwelling place, a sanctuary through which God will reside with his bride, a tabernacle. And the next several chapters after 24 really get into, they kind of jump ahead. They outline the instructions, the materials that will be needed, the people who were involved in this building project. And I don't know if you remember or if you were with us, but we looked at these chapters last spring. Now, based upon these intermediate chapters, you might think when we get to Exodus 32 or we get back in the timeline of the story, you might think we might be led to believe that the Lord moved into the tabernacle and they all lived happily ever after. But when we come to chapter 32 this morning, we find out that nothing could be further from the truth. I invite you to hear the word of God from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From the base of the mountain, from the vantage point of the people, Moses has vanished. He's disappeared. He's not coming back. Or he's dead. And this absence of Moses makes the Israelites more aware of where they are. In case they forgot or we forgot. The wilderness. The absence of Moses makes the reality of the wilderness more pronounced for them. They feel abandoned. 
They feel vulnerable. They feel helpless. They feel lost. They are afraid. And if you've ever been camping or had any kind of wilderness experience and ever been disoriented in the wilderness, you can relate to what the people are feeling right now. This disorientation makes the Israelites lose a little bit of their memory. They, they, they suffer a little memory loss because of this disorientation in the wilderness. I mean, after all, didn't these people see with their own eyes the Lord part the Red Sea so that they could walk through it and then bring the waters down on the Egyptian soldiers that were pursuing them? Didn't these people see a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that led them to the mountain that they're on? that they're at the base of? Didn't these people see in the midst of a barren wasteland, a wilderness where there was no food, manna that came down from heaven, quail that filled their bellies? Didn't these people see water in the midst of a desert, a wilderness that came gushing forth from a rock? But suddenly, they have lost perspective. They have lost sight of God's provision. But if you were listening carefully while they lost sight of God's provision, you'll notice that they didn't forget how to complain. Old habits die hard. And the text tells us that the people immediately went to Aaron. The, the better Hebrew reading rather than gathered around Aaron is they ambushed him. They mobbed him and they started making demands. Come on. Make gods who will go before us. The people wanted something they could see. The people wanted something concrete. The people wanted something they could hold on to. They insisted before Aaron on making their own way with a god they could get their arms around. The people wanted to take their salvation into their own hands. We lose perspective. And then when we lose perspective... We can't help but see what we want to see. Aaron, Aaron, you'll recall, at the end of 24, was deputized. Moses gets called up the mountain and Aaron gets deputized. Aaron, you're in charge if any trouble should happen while I'm gone. I'm guaranteeing you Aaron did not think it was going to come to this. And Aaron, being the future priest, the founder of the priesthood, the one who's left in charge, deputized, we might expect that Aaron, one who traveled with Moses, who saw the same things that the people did, who probably had more inside information than others because he was with Moses, we would expect Aaron, when the people mobbed him, would have pushed back on their breaking of the first commandment. But if you've never heard this story before, you notice that Aaron doesn't bat an eye. Aaron doesn't Push back at all. In fact, he leads the people not only in breaking the first commandment, but said, hey, let's break the second. They violate the second word. As Aaron takes an earring offering, the gold that they had received from the Egyptians on their way out, the gold that the Egyptians gave them as a way of saying, please, yes, please leave and let that God who, who has come against us go with you. He collects the gold that they received from the Egyptians. Later on, the ushers are going to pass the plate. All earring and jewelry, please, put inside the plates. Everyone's like, what did I wear today? He takes an earring offering and takes that gold and he melts it down and he shapes it into a golden calf, a young bull, which would have been very familiar to the people. Very familiar because in that time and in that day, that calf, that bull was a symbol of power and of strength. It was something they could recognize. It was something familiar. And in fact, the people in seeing this symbol that they're familiar with, the power and strength, they see what they want to see as they cry out, these are the gods who brought us up out of Egypt. There's our God. 
And I want you to be really clear because we've often heard this story differently and we really need to pay close attention to what we're given here. These people do not perceive this golden calf, this bull, as another god. They don't perceive it as replacing the god who rescued them. They embrace this calf, this bull, as their way to identify, to worship the God who redeemed them, to see and touch and hold their God. Now, if we doubt this, look at Aaron. Aaron, who again will be the future of the priesthood, sees the same thing as the people. When this calf is built, he builds an altar and he declares, tomorrow we're going to have a festival to the Lord. He doesn't say to this God, he says to the Lord. He uses the name Yahweh, the divine name, the name given to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh doesn't think they're worshiping another, uh, Aaron doesn't think they're worshiping another God. The people don't think they're worshiping another God. Aaron and the people believe they are worshiping their God. And that's why they offer burnt offerings, peace offerings, fellowship offerings. And that's why we start to see that Aaron, in many ways, is saying and doing the right things, sort of. His intent's not to replace Yahweh. We talked about this last week, but I want you to see it in action here. That once again, we see that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The people have the best of intentions. Aaron have the best of intent, has the best of intentions. The desire is for security. They desire to be secure. They desire to worship. They desire to keep God in front of them. If you step back from the story, who can argue with that? We want to be secure. We want to worship. We feel compelled to worship. We want to keep God in front of us better than behind us, right? Best of intentions. And yet, with the best of intentions... Once again, we see that the best of intentions cannot help sometimes but sabotage the meaning of our commitments. The calf isn't intended as a replacement for God. The calf is intended as a help, as a mediator. This is important because when we talk about idolatry in our world and in our day, we tend to define idolatry like this. Uh, idolatry is where we have something or someone that replaces God in our lives. That's our definition of idolatry. Something or someone replaces God in our lives. Basically, we set something else in God's place. But if you look, that's not how this story works. God isn't displaced. God isn't replaced with the image of the golden calf. If anyone's replaced here, it's Moses. We don't know what happened to that guy. But Yahweh's still in view. God is still invoked. They confess they can't see Moses, but God is still in their view. The Lord is in their vision, but their vision becomes limited. Yahweh isn't replaced. He's reduced. He's reduced to an image, to a symbol that can be controlled. Beloved, this episode shows in a very powerful and frankly frightening way that idolatry is far more slippery, far more subtle of a temptation than we realize. Because idolatry at its heart is rooted in something good. Okay? Idolatry is rooted in this desire for spirituality. It's in, rooted in a desire to make a connection. It's rooted in a desire to worship. These are good impulses. Idolatry, though, is not about replacing it. It's about reducing, reduction. Idolatry is about making God smaller. 
Idolatry is about making God manageable so we can get our arms around this God. Idolatry is about making God concrete, making God make sense, making God airtight, making God beyond argument. And don't we often, if we really are honest, isn't that what we want? We want to share God with others. Don't we want to make God airtight? Don't we want to make him concrete so he's beyond argument? This is idolatry. Idolatry is making God fit. Idolatry is making God fit and be shaped by our expectations and experience. And isn't it also interesting that within the church and outside the church, we live at a time when, not that this is excluded, but the number one definer of God is our expectations and our experience. Our, how we define God is defined by our expectations and experience first. I'm not saying it shouldn't be there, but I'm saying that trumps everything. This is idolatry. Expectations and experience making God fit. And isn't it interesting that God often, so often fits exactly the way that we want him to? Idolatry is keeping God in front of us so that God can take us where we want to go. And so what we see, if, we're, if you're with me, is idolatry is really about manipulation. Idolatry, hear this, is false worship of the true God. We often define idolatry as being false worship of a false God. Not in this story. Idolatry is false worship of a true God. False worship of a true God. It often looks and feels like the real thing. Man, great intentions, great spectacle. God must be in it. But frankly, what we see here, which is a caution for us, is while the spiritual intentions are fabulous, all we have is a one-way commitment. Because it's not about what saith the Lord, it's what we say to God. This is an old story. But it, I, get, I really do, I get goosebumps. I get the hairs go up on the back of my arms, on my arms and on the back of my neck. Because this is an old story with a contemporary heartbeat. When the chips are down in our lives... When the chips are down, when, when we, we talk in our smaller circles about the fact that we don't see God, when we share maybe one-on-one -on -one with each other that I don't feel like my prayers are being answered, when we find ourselves suddenly aware that we are in the wilderness and when we feel abandoned, when we feel scared, when we feel helpless, when we feel vulnerable, aren't we just like the Israelites? Isn't it easier to complain than it is to praise the Lord? Isn't that our default mode? Isn't our default mode our go-to place? What have you done for me lately? And what's so ironic, and Pastor Joe, if you're, I hope you're engaging in the soul practices that he's giving us. Pastor Joe has a practice this week of counting your blessings, which can we just say on the one hand is almost ridiculous. Really? i got to be told to count my blessings? But that bespeaks exactly what I'm talking about. Our default mode is not to count our blessings. Our default mode is to say, what have you done for me lately? Our default mode is not to live out of gratitude. Our default mode, like the Israelites, is to live out of desperation. Are you living out of desperation or are you living out of gratitude? They had manna. They had fire. They had smoke. They had the Red Sea. They had water from a rock and they lost perspective. Come on and make us gods who can go before us. What have you done for me lately? We have the beauty of creation, the very breath that you, each of us are taking right now that we take for granted. So many other things just about creation itself that we just assume ought to be there, going to be there tomorrow. 
We have the love of community. You are sitting amongst people who love you, who are there for you, who God has placed in your life. And be, with the people that are here, there are many other that aren't even represented that are also there for you. We are here. We gather in this space because God has declared to us our worthiness. That we are forgiven. He has offered us the promise of eternal life. And yet in the midst of all these things we say, and not maybe even a few seconds after the service, given the right circumstances, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? We can be like the Israelites sitting at the foot of the mountain waiting for a sign. Waiting for a sign that everything will be okay. Is that your life right now? Do you feel like you're sitting at the base of the mountain waiting for a sign? Is everything going to be okay? And in that moment when God doesn't answer the way we want or God doesn't answer in a way we can hear, can't we, like the Israelites, grasp for the familiar and the tangible? Aren't we also lured by the power of safety? I just want to be safe. And we see, like the Israelites, what we want to see. All of a sudden, this God who seems so far away, this God whom we don't seem to hear from, suddenly, magically seems to fit into the very expectations and experiences that we had. And next thing you know, the very words we wanted to hear are coming out of God's mouth. And we claim, thus says the Lord. It's the will of God. And the next thing you know, God seems to always be saying exactly what we want to hear. Huh. Perhaps the most powerful example of this, corporately. It's so poignant to me, the timing of this, in the times, the days in which we are as a community. We are still seeing our economy crumble. Columns, talking heads, protesters marching on Wall Street and other places. It's the fear, the concern, the abandonment. It's still palpable. It's out there. Beloved, as our economy continues to crumble in the midst of all of that which is real, will we, at least in the church, will we at last admit that we put more faith in the security of our wealth than we did in God? Can we at least admit that in the church? Because I'm not hearing it. Or are we going to panic like the rest of the world? Are we going to panic and try to pool the little money that we have left, appealing to the financial priests, demanding that they give us a bull market that will lead us out of this recession? Where is the church in a time in which the church is so desperately needed? Where are the people of God? Where are the people who worship the living God in the midst of a world that is still trying to build a golden calf? And it goes deeper. There are other sacred cows we can talk about if we're going to keep it real this morning. Other sacred cows that we need to make into hamburger. Other sacred cows that narrow the Lord down to size. We live in a, a part of the world, we live in a country where we, we, many of us inside the church believe that religion is a private matter. Religion is a private matter. Um, and, and really, you should keep that to yourself. And salvation is individual. Where did that golden calf come from? Where in the word of God do you find that? Where do you find God saying, you know, religion is only for behind closed doors? The God I see basically says, this is taking it to the streets, to the marketplace, out in the city court. Yet we've convinced ourselves, we've built a golden calf that says religion is private. And it's really disrespectful if you don't, you don't keep to that privacy. 
And salvation, we've exclaimed, is individual. That's how we keep it there. It's all about me and Jesus. If Jesus and me are cool, sorry for the rest of you people. That's not what I see. That, where did that golden calf come from? God doesn't say that. God says, and, we don't, and this, this presents this tension, that our salvation is tied to the salvation of our neighbor. That our salvation isn't individual, it's corporate. Where did we get this division between the sacred and the secular? Where did that golden calf come from? And we talked about this before, too, where we, we talk about the sacred and the secular. We create this divide. Well, I have my religious behavior over here, my spiritual practices, and then my more pragmatic side. Where did that division come from? Where did we divide ourselves like that? It's not scriptural. It's not from the word of God. The God, God that we engage engages the whole person, seeks the transformation of the whole person. The God has no distinction between secular and sacred. It's all sacred because it all belongs to God. Here's one you've probably heard before. Where did we suddenly decide that and, and, and make materialism a golden calf? Where all of a sudden did we, decide, did, we, did we feel that God gave us the ability to create this God that says, you know, if you're getting everything you want, you're being blessed. But if you're not, clearly you haven't received the Lord's favor. We call it the health and prosperity gospel. Now, some of us cringe and say, well, I, don't, I don't engage in that. But we all engage in it a little bit. Because in our lives, we tend to look at our lives whether we admit it or not. If we're getting all the stuff we want, God is good. But if we're not, hey, what have you done for me lately? And isn't it interesting also, back to this idea of this undercut of believing that abundance or materialism is tied to God's favor, that when we are getting God's abundance, so-called, and materialism, are all our needs fulfilled, we aren't inclined to share with anybody else. Instead, we, put, we now, even though we don't embrace this theology, turn around and say, well, they're obviously not working hard enough. They obviously clearly haven't been, don't have the favor of the Lord. This idolatry is not as far removed as we think. And then let's really take it real. Let's go to our own community. I talked about this in the first service. I talked about it in this service. We're one church, and yet we'll hear this in different places. Is it possible in the church? And we, this service is probably less Lutheran than the first. Let's just be honest. We've got a diversity of different backgrounds that some of you are coming from. So it does, this isn't a Lutheran thing. Isn't it possible that in the church, we have, part of the problem that we're having in the church is that we've taken our religious traditions, our symbols, and our preferences, and we've allowed them to eclipse the God to whom they point. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with tradition. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with symbols. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with preferences. We all have them. Diversity is good. What I am saying is that something good can become an idol when those traditions, those symbols, those preferences get elevated above the God that they are supposed to point us to. And that begins when we say in church, you know what, I cannot worship God unless there's five praise songs. If there's only three, I just can't. And if they sing one of those hymns, oh my gosh, I so cannot get into the presence of Jesus with that. And if Pastor Chris comes in a robe, I'm walking out the door. And if the service goes on longer than an hour and 20 minutes, well, football's about to kick off, man. I can't worship God if that's happening. Think about the, th the, pro the point is not the preferences. I have preferences. The point is when the preferences, when we make absolute statements that say we cannot worship God. We cannot engage Christ. You know why? Because what that does and why that's idolatry is when we basically create the worship service that we want, when we create those absolutes, what are we denying? The reality of the wilderness in our lives. There is no wilderness. 
And God takes us into the wilderness. God disorients us sometimes. God takes us out of our comfort zone. Why? Because God recognizes that the very things that often bring us closer to him can become idols in our lives that take us away. And so God's challenge at times is to say to us, what are you really worshiping? Who are you really worshiping? Beloved, idolatry is taking all of our stuff because God provides it all, but we, we realize the idols in our life when we look at all of our stuff and we realize that what we really place our value in, where our money, we put our money where our mouth is, okay? Because all of a sudden, all the stuff that God provides, we all of a sudden realize that it's become an idol when we've made it into the image of God. What in your life, if I don't have this, God and I are quits. We sing, and we're not singing it today, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you actually listen to those lyrics when you sing it? The first stanza is about all the things that God provides. The second stanza is, even if that stuff is gone, blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you really sing that? Can you sing that? Do you know what we're singing when we sing that? Because idolatry is when we mistake the gift for the giver. Idolatry is when we confuse the means for the end. And that leads us into a regular part of our worship service, a time of confession, and why do we confess when it's all been forgiven in Christ? Because the Israelites were already married, man. God provided it all. It's all there. We need to confess because even though it's all there, we can fall into the trap of losing perspective, of seeing what we want to see, of mistaking the means for the end. In your handout, there's some reflective questions to kind of lead you into this space, maybe lead to some conversation later. Take a few moments and lay your heart before this God. Lay your heart before this God. Can we throw the questions on the screen? Lay your heart before this God and ask, where have you seen others shape God according to their expectations? Look out first. Where and how are you tempted? How are we tempted to make God fit into what is comfortable and familiar to us? Take a few moments, reflect, lay that before God, and then Pastor Joe is going to close us out with a prayer of confession. Let's pray. Let's confess. There's something sweet about facing our idols. Well, there's a sweetness of your presence, of your favor, just your grace, Lord, when we identify those things that we've run to to save us other than you, things we've worshiped or won't let go of. Some of them become a stronghold, Lord, where they hold us strong. 
So we repent, Lord, of those things that we have worshipped, even worshipping our feelings. We repent of those things we've run to to get our value from other than you. Confess, Lord, that we've given over to fear instead of to you. We want to hold on to something that is tangible and get our value there. So I repent of that, Jesus. I ask for cleansing of my heart. I thank you, Lord, that you've come to set me free from my idols. So good, Lord, that you bring freedom from captivity to those things we worship and that have captured our hearts. You come to set us free. So I break the hold of any strongholds, any idols that have become a stronghold that won't let go, that we've run to to hide behind or get our identity, and they become our identity. So we declare, Lord, that you are the one we trust. We put our confidence in you, Jesus, and not those things that we have run to save us. And we receive your grace and for forgiveness. And we thank you for the sweetness of confession and the freedom that comes when we see, when the, we get revelation, Lord. Oh, this is what's happening in my life. This is where I need to turn and stop doing what I'm doing and turn and run to you. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of this Father's Prayer. Sometimes it, this prayer we call the Lord's Prayer, sometimes it helps me not to pray out loud, but just to pray quietly while others are praying this prayer. So we're going to pray it twice. We'll start out with those who are on my right. And you're going to pray out loud this prayer. On this side, we'll just be quiet and pray silently in your heart. And then we'll, this side, we'll pray it out loud, and then you'll be quiet. So let's start on this side, a prayer to our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Now this side. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Story. I want to share that with you. Another perspective from the top, not the bottom of the mountain. Starting at verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. 
They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Again, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want you to appreciate the irony. If you missed it, Moses is on the top of the mountain receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, for God's dwelling place to be among his people. Where at the bottom of the mountain, Aaron and the people taking matters into their own hands are trying to do the same thing. They're attempting to take God with them. And instead of the tabernacle, they're trying to fit God in a convenient travel economy size. And God sees. God knows. What we see from God's immediate response to Moses is that God did not go into this marriage blind, as some of us perhaps do. God sees these people. God sees us. Notice he says to Moses, your people who you led out of Egypt. And before we think that's God dismissing himself from his people, there's more going on here. But God presses on, your people, I've seen them. They are a stiff-necked people. We are a stiff-necked people. The covenant got broken before the blood that was meant to seal it even got dry. God is angry and he tells Moses that he purposes to destroy the Israelites. And many of us may step back and go, I don't like this picture of God. And if we step back for a second just to forget it's God, how would you feel? It's not even two months into the wedding and you've been cheated on. You've been cheated on, and would you not, like this God who created us, have the anger of betrayal? Would you not have an anger of betrayal that comes out of love because betrayal is an anger that's born of love, of being angry against that which comes between you and the one that you love? But there's more going on here. I just simply say that if we are created in the image of God, can we allow that God can have any emotion? But there's more going on here than a lover's scorn at being rejected. It's important that we catch and we read between the lines. And probably the subtle hint is when God says to Moses, your people, who you brought out of Egypt. But the more explicit hint is when God says to Moses, leave me alone. Give me a moment so that I can destroy these people and then I'll make a great nation out of you. Understand what's going on here, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Moses is getting his vision checked. Moses is being tested He wasn't down there among the people, but he's one of them. Does Moses see better than the people see? Does this Moses know this God? Or will he fall victim 
as they did? Will his focus be on himself, his own self-interest? And what's really powerful about this encounter, what's really, really interesting, is that it is the perfect scenario. Because Moses doesn't say a thing. It's God who says, hey man, I'll, start, I'll wipe them out and I'll start over with you. Moses has an out. It's not his idea. And Moses has experienced his share of a very stiff-necked and complaining people. Yeah, Lord, I know what you mean. You know, that might not be a bad idea. I think I could create a better race of people. Moses has an out. Will he take the bait? Will he make God into an idol? Will he remake God into his own image, the image that God puts before him? Will Moses let God be remade and violate himself? Is that okay? I mean, and again, I want to really put, show you, Moses can put it all on God. Well, you said, you opened the door. But Moses doesn't take the bait. Moses, his line of sight, as the scripture says, is the favor of the Lord. Not the God of his own making. Not the God he could make. Moses calls God out. Moses reflects God's image back to him. Moses his vision is for the God of Revelation, the Lord of Revelation, not the God that he can make himself. And so he focuses on the Lord's presence. Notice what Moses says when God says, your people who you brought out of Egypt. Moses says, no, don't assign that to me. Not taking, don't, that wasn't me, your people. You did that. I didn't do it, you did it. And what about the Egyptians? Lord, what will they say if you do this? Didn't you reveal yourself to them too? What will they say? What idol will they make if you do this? And then Moses, if it's possible, goes for the jugular with God. What about your promise? What about your covenant, Lord? What about what you said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You see, what Moses gets, what Moses sees, is that God's covenant is God's character. You know, we talk about promises last week. You and I make promises all the time. We, do all, we say all kinds of things. What's different between human beings and God is God's promise is God's character. It's not something God does. It's who God is. God doesn't just say stuff. If God says stuff, it happens. Because that's who God is. And Moses gets it that God's promise can't be separated from his character. So in essence, Moses says, you can't be any less. You can't. This isn't who you are. You can't violate yourself. And God relents and does not bring the disaster he had threatened. And we can imagine that God says, Moses sees me for who I am. And what we understand from this exchange is that as we often like to say, hindsight is 2020 vision. How is Moses able to see God? Because unlike the people who lose perspective, who can only see what's in front of them, who cannot see into the future, Moses looks back. Moses looks back. He looks back in order to understand the present. He looks back in order to anticipate the future. And that's part of the reason why we come to this table. That's why this meal is so important. Because we don't just come to remember. We say we remember, but it's not like we come to the table and go, man, that was nice. Boy, that was so cool when that happened. We come to this table because we believe that when we remember that it's happening again. That this is a way of understanding where we are right now and it's our assurance of what will be in the future. That's what Moses reflects back on God. He remembers the past. And I'm here to tell, for many of you who represent a younger generation, 
that I am with you, that many of the traditions in the church, many of the symbols in the church, many of the liturgy, much of the liturgy in the church has become idolatrous. We go through it just to go through the motions. But as your pastor, I also say to you, for those of you who say you're bored, for those of you who say, I don't, I don't get it, get it because it's your past. And if you don't get it and breathe new life to it, you won't have a past with this God. And if you don't have a past with this God, you won't perceive you have a present and you sure as heck won't believe you have a future. We need to be talking to each other. For an older generation, they need to realize that the things that have become idols need to be taken down so they can be made right again, serve the purpose they were intended. But for a younger generation, you cannot throw them out. You cannot toss them away and re replace them with nothing. Moses is tempted to start over, but he doesn't. He holds on to the past. Because he knows that the past is the key to God in the present and the God of the future. Beloved, so often we ask the wrong question and it's an idolatrous question. We ask when we're confronted with challenges and struggles in our lives, let alone in the church. We step back and when we hit the first sign of trouble, we say, what do we need to do to grow? What do we need to do to survive? What do we need to do to be successful? What's going to work? And what we see here is that's the wrong question. It's a reduction question. It's an idolatrous question. The question is not what do we need to do to survive or to grow or to be successful. And the manifestation of that, by the way, in the church is that right now in the midst of a church that's dying, conventional church wisdom is, is this. This simple. It's one sentence. Give the people what they want. Give the 830 service their robes, their liturgy, their green hymnal. Give them everything they want from their heyday and give you whatever you want. Service will be over in 20 minutes. We'll just sing. There'll be no sermon. Come get communion. Self-serve. <laughs> give the people what they want. You're laughing. But it is the way of our world. And as your pastor, I can't give you what you want. I can only give you what you need. The right question is not about what will work. And in three years of being here as your pastor, maybe we can finally, all of us, understand that that's not the right question. It's not what other people are doing, other churches, what they did in the past. It's not about what will work. The right question is where is the Lord? Who is God? Who is the Lord? It's not about us shaping God according to our will, to according to what will work for us, according to our expectations. It's humbling ourselves and allowing ourselves to be shaped according to God's will, to how he's already at work in our lives and in our world. The right question is not about what will work. It's about working out our lives in response to the Holy One. And so we need to stop talking about what will work and instead say, where is the Lord? Where is this God? We need to live responsibly out of the presence. The presence of God and style, all our different preferences, those things can fall under that and we can be united if we are trying together to live out of the presence of God. And that brings us to this part of our service. I know we're running a little long. <laughs> Old habits die hard. <laughs> the offering. It's not just putting something in the plate. The offering in, in the worship service every week, it's not just to support the church. It's not just so that I have a salary, though it helps. <laughs> I mean, it does. The offering is a, 
is, is, a, is, a, is a, a token. It's an expression of giving back to God what belongs to God. It's a way of living out the right question. It's not about put the money in because that's what we need to make it work. It's about God is present in my life and I acknowledge the presence of God. I'm responding to the presence of God by what I put in the plate. And it's only scratching the surface of my response. It's way more than this, what you put in the plate. It's a way of saying, I'm not going to live out of desperation. I'm going to live out of gratitude. And so, beloved, I invite you to reflect, to give, to listen. And if you have been living out of desperation, just in these brief moments, feel a little bit of what it looks like, what it feels like to live out of gratitude. Give back to God what God has given to you. Take the offer. I'm a prodigal with no way home. I put you on just 
like a ring of gold and I run down the aisle I run down the aisle from you Because money cannot buy a husband's jealous side when you have knowing deceived his wife for I am a whore I do confess that you want just like a wedding dress and I Run down the aisle, run down the aisle. Cause I'm a prodigal with no way home. Put you on just like a ring of gold. And I run down the aisle, run down the aisle. Cause I am a whore, I do confess. Put you on just like a wedding dress. And I run down the Run down the aisle And I'm a prodigal with no way home Put you on just like a ring of gold And I run down the aisle Run down the aisle from you Those are hard words Shocking, but that doesn't make them any less true. You know, in many ways, as we come to this table, a way that speaks this passage into our lives, our, our discipleship with Christ, is the distinction between the image and the identity of Jesus. Many of us in our walk with Christ are satisfied with just the image of Jesus, the wedding dress that we can put on, the idea of Jesus. And the problem with just the image, the idea of Jesus, is it's real easy if that's all you know of this Jesus to fit Jesus into your agenda. It ultimately can create the Jesus of our own imagination. And that's why in the church we're so divided, I believe. That's why we fight all the time. Because we're fighting about a God that we want to look good. We're fighting about a God that we want to sound good. We fight about what a Christian looks like, what a Christian sounds like. We argue about what a church looks like, what a church sounds like. And at the end of the day, what it is is what we see in Exodus 32. We're making Jesus work for us instead of working for Jesus. My brothers and sisters in Christ, a God who sounds good and a God who looks good is not a God that can save us. It's not a God that will change us. We need to press, and that's why every week we come to this table, even though it also adds to the time in our service, we come to this table not just for the image, but for the identity of Christ, because we are called to hunger and know who is this Jesus? Who did Jesus say he was? What did Jesus say he was about? What was Jesus' vision? We need to, yes, talk about our expectations and our experience, but we need first to be together in God's word, wrestling with this Jesus. We need to be submitting to the spirit of Christ, to letting this Jesus speak into our lives, shaping how we think and react rather than we are shaping Jesus into what we want him to be. 
Because the more we press into the identity of Jesus, the more we understand ourselves, the more we understand each other, the more we understand this God. I was raised Catholic, some of you know that, and I, moving from being a Catholic to a Protestant, I will confess that I, there was a certain, I really took a certain, the change of seeing the cross, and even it became a measure of pride for me. And you know, for some of you, if you're non-practicing Catholics, you know the big Protestant hang, big Protestant kind of thumping is, yeah, we don't have Jesus hanging on our cross because Jesus isn't still up there. We're not like those Catholics. We don't have Jesus still up on the cross because he's not there anymore. And I'm going to confess to you as a Catholic who became a Protestant, man, I love that. And I have members who are Catholic in my family, and I would, man, just that would be like one of my things I could talk about, the difference. But I'm going to confess to you that more and more as a Protestant, more and more as a Christian, I miss Jesus on that cross. I miss Jesus on that cross because while it's true Jesus isn't still up there, that cross is neat and tidy and it's clean. And if we get back into the scriptures and if we open ourselves up to the spirit of God, that cross isn't neat and tidy and it's not clean. Jesus isn't still up there, but in a way he is because that's the difference about our faith. Our faith doesn't make it all neat, tidy and clean. It lets it all hang out there. It doesn't shy away from it, that it gets messy. The cross is messy. I can't get my arms around it. We come to this table, we can't even agree about what's happening when we come to this table. But we know this, it's real. We know this, it's true. We know this, it's not just an image, it's an idea. It changes us, it heals us, it forgives us. And we know this, that whenever we invoke these words, whenever we point to this cross, whenever we engage in this meal, Jesus is with us. So the question this morning becomes, what do we want, people of God? Do we want a God who looks good? Do we want a God who sounds good? Or do we want a God who is good? Jesus gathered with his disciples that night. He was betrayed. In many ways, a betrayal, almost like we see in Exodus 32. And as he was gathered with people who he knew were stiff-necked, he took bread and gave thanks for it and blessed it. He broke it in their presence and said, this is my body, broken, given for you take and eat it. And in the same way, he took the cup, a cup that was there on the table, and he blessed it and he gave thanks for it and he said, this this is the promise. This is me. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink from it. And my brothers and sisters, when we eat this bread, when we drink this cup, we remember. Our vision gets bigger, but we also proclaim we proclaim that because of what he did, we can be secure in where we are and we can be hopeful and confident in where we are going because Christ is with us. I invite you. I invite you to come and taste and see the goodness of our God. I invite you to come and not just embrace the image of Jesus, but to embrace Press upon the identity of Christ. As you're ready, let us come to the table of God.